Welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. I am Jason, and with me as usual is Rich. Hello, Rich. What's up, Jason? Not too much. Uh, Today we have a special guest to discuss the greatest moments of the late Elgin Baylor's career. He's a frequent guest of the program, Curtis Harris of Pro Hoops History. Welcome, Curtis. Hey, glad to be back. So, as mentioned, we are talking about um, Elgin Baylor, who uh, died on March 22nd, 2021, at age 86 of natural causes. Of course, one of the greatest players in NBA history, Hall of Famer on the top 50 list in 1997. Ten times All-NBA first team, 11-time All-Star. He never won an MVP, but he finished in the top three four times, including a second-place finish in 1963. And was known for his acrobatic scoring moves, tremendous playmaking from the wing position, um, amazing player in many respects, but truly historic as a scorer. We'll get into some of his uh, numbers in a little bit. And, and really just, you know, part of the first generation of African-American NBA superstars, along with obviously Bill Russell, Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robertson, and Marie Stokes really push the boundaries of the game, you know, opening up the it's to more opportunities for African-Americans um, and also elevating the league into major league status and on TVs across America. So occurs to you first, you know, what would you say made Elgin Baylor such an important player in NBA history? Uh, from a playing standpoint, I think it's, you know, it's, it's been, I've read a few pieces today, uh, and they all get to, I think, the most essential part of what he contributed uh, was the, uh, not necessarily making the game vertical, because the game, you know, with, I think with Bill Russell, the game had already really begun to go vertical. Uh, but what Elgin Baylor did is that uh, he, like, he made the game 360 in a sense, where, like, it wasn't just going straight up or down or back and forth, but, like, he would, you know, go around people and swerve and twist and um, just have the have the hang time. You know, that's been mentioned. So, uh, wouldn't just do like a straight shot. Uh, he would, you know, contort, hold in the air, double pump. Uh, I think that's the really it's succinctly the lasting contribution he made to how basketball was played. To be the first player to do that consistently all the time is kind of his trademark. Yeah, and um, as mentioned. Um, you know, really, truly, um, it was, was contributed in so many different ways, but truly historic as a scorer. And he was the first NBA player to score 70 points in a game, um, scoring 71 against the New York Knicks, uh, breaking his previous record of 64. Um, also has an NBA finals record of 61 points in 1962. Overall, he had 19 games of 50 points or more. And I mean, you, you look, I mean, he had a tremendous career, but if you look at his peak, you know, from about 1960, 1965, the average 31.1 points per game on 49 true shooting, which is above average for the time, 15.5 rebounds and 4.4 assists per game. Also, uh, four seasons in a row led the league in playoff points per game from, from 60 to 63. So this, of course, he's playing at the same time as Will Chamberlain, but, you know, led the league in, in points per game in the playoffs during those seasons, which I thought was pretty interesting. Um, you know, with other guys, you know, pretty stout scorers in the league as well. Um, led the Lakers to eight finals appearances. Unfortunately, all of them um, losses, most of those to the Celtics. 
Uh, but when he retired in 1972, he was eighth all-time in PER, sixth in points, sixth in rebounds, and eighth in assists. And he's still top 30 all-time in PER and third all-time in points per game. But if you look, yeah, I mean, top six in points, top six in rebounds, top eight in assists, you know, it kind of shows, you know, the really the versatility that he had. And I was struck today, you know, watching some of the, the, the plays of him of, you know, understanding, you know, that he was the, the crafty shot making, but really the the – playmaking ability and how much he was really handling the ball. And um, you can really see um, traces of how the game evolved with, um, you know, you, you know, kind of starting with Elgin, you know, kind of playing that style and pushing that style and the influence of that style on, you know, so many other generations of players. Yeah. I, uh, I was listening to uh, Bob Ryan. He was uh, doing an interview uh, on a show today, a radio show today. And, uh, and, and to Curtis's point, I think Bob Ryan, the words that he used is, uh, diagonally, he like changed the game diagonally. Where, 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 yeah, vertical. Yeah, you got Bill Russell. You have other guys that did it vertically, horizontally. Of course, uh, the game was that for so long. But Elgin just, yeah, he just bucked all the trends and just kind of said, "Hey, I'm going this way, and I'm doing this with the ball, and I'm going to score this way." And it's like, you know, you watch those highlights, and and there's a great one by the Wilt Chamberlain Archive uh, on YouTube. It's like a 26 minute highlight video uh, of Elgin Barely, which blows the NBA one out of the way. Do, do not even bother with the NBA one. The <laughs> NBA one is like two minutes, and it's like. Did you guys just type in Elgin Baylor and just say, all right, here we go. Here's like Elgin Baylor things that we have. Cause they're not really even highlights. Like a lot of them are just like Elgin Baylor dribbles Elgin Baylor goes for shots. And it's like, oh, okay. That, and then you watch this 26 minute one and you're like, oh wow. Yeah. That's what he can do. That's what he was capable of. But yeah, you just watch the stuff that he did and the way he, he was so crafty with the ball and, and the stuff that he's doing a lot of it that you see today, it doesn't look spectacular. Cause it's like stuff that we see all the time oh yeah and up and under oh yeah reverse oh yeah he just slices through the lane and goes up with a you know with a runner and you're like ah well whatever guys do that all the time now but yeah you can see how like he just completely changes the game at that time and 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 just what he was able to do and how he was able to do it and and really just the fact that he did it that he was just you know largely because of i would say probably his upbringing which we'll talk about in a little bit which you know obviously wasn't the most accommodating for uh you know you know synchronized or real kind of fundamental basketball it was just kind of, you know, he, he was unfortunately let, you know, not really able to do a ton of, uh, of, of, you know, high level high school basketball and wasn't able to do high level college basketball. So he just kind of did what he would do. You know, it, it, a lot of it is sort of stuff that you would see in playgrounds or stuff that, you know, kids would just sort of experiment with. And he was able to bring that to the NBA and, and, and do it without really any restrictions. And the Lakers were more than happy to say, Hey, look, if someone's going to score and someone's going to win us ball games, go ahead and do it. And, and, and yeah, that was the result is, is one of the, the, you know, the premier scorers in the league and one of the more awesome scorers in the league in just terms of what he could do and how he could go to the basket and how he could score. And it absolutely, absolutely changed the game entirely. I mean, everything that we, uh, most of what we see today and, 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 and stuff, it's got to get traced back to, to Elgin Baylor and how he, you know, attacked the hole and, and, and what he did as a forward uh, and what he did handling the ball, what he did scoring, all that sort of stuff. It, it all, it all traces back to Elgin Baylor. Yeah, and I mean, you look at the variety of um, players who talked about, you know, what an influence he had on them. Um, you know, Rick Barry, uh, Julius Irving, you know, Spencer Haywood. I mean, all, all those guys, you know, were really influenced by, um, you know, directly by by Elgin's moves and you know his, um, you know his his craft. I mean, you know, he was certainly a you know very athletic, but it was ju- you know just as much of craft, creativity, of skill that you know really influenced um, his moves and his playmaking and, and, and shot making. Um, I mean, it really was the the total package. And, and like you said, Rich, I mean, he didn't you know NBA 
there was very little, if any, um, television coverage of the NBA, you know, when Elgin was growing up and, um, you know, he didn't have the ability to really, you know, watch anybody. He had to he just kind of develop it um, himself and, you know, and probably to the benefit of, to, to some degree of not having as, as much um, organized basketball as he was able to, you know, um, use his creativity. There was no one else to kind of stifle that creativity as it had been, you know, in previous generations and was able to, um, you know, you know, you know kind of, uh, d- develop that just given the circumstances that he was in. Yeah, Curtis can probably speak to this a little bit more, but from my understanding is that when he played in 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 and when he grew up in the early fifties in Washington D.C., uh, public schools still completely segregated and they couldn't play against other white teams. So it was just him playing against other black high schools. And uh, is is that correct? Do, do you do you know that for sure, uh, Curtis? That's how I thought I read is that he just you know because of the segregation he was just always playing against black teams over and over and over again. Um. Yeah, I can't speak specifically to like the like official athletic competition um, in DC, but definitely the uh, the schools were segregated. Okay, uh, at that point, yeah, we yeah, it wasn't until the late fifties that they really desegregated schools. So, yeah, so I'm not expert on the like the high school level competition. Mm-hmm. So, like, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they happen to play a white team or white players every now and then. But the schools were definitely segregated. Okay, because yeah. yeah, that's I, I I believe it was a Bob Ryan article that I read. I, I, I read so many things I got to mix up again. But yeah, they, they were kind of saying that Elgin would always say like, well, I didn't really know how white you know people played. So when I got to the league, yeah. it was just like, you know, this is what I do. And they're like, well, no, you can't. Okay. I mean, I guess it's working for you. So go ahead and do it. And that's sometimes that's what, you know, what will breed the most new sort of uh, things into the game is someone that's really kind of an unknown that just comes in and goes, well, this is what I do. And it works. And it's like, oh, all right, well, Shit, do it. <laughs> like, go ahead. You know, there was no real, there was no coach telling him he can't do it. There was no, and, and we'll talk about his college career here in a little bit too. I mean, that was really just like, hey, you're coming to Seattle and the College of Idaho. Hey, whatever you do, man, they can can score. We don't care. Go and do it. And and I think that really helps. You know, it didn't get beat out of him that, oh, no, no, that's not the way we play, or no, that's not how you play, or yada, yada, yada. It was just like, hey, he was good at scoring and uh, these schools needed him to score and nobody really stopped him. And then he got to the NBA, and of course, no one's going to stop him there in, in, in Minneapolis as they're trying to just hang on uh, to their life as an NBA franchise. So I think that really does play a huge, huge role on him being what he is and, and, and being able to invent so many different things. Well, yeah, I was going to mention just uh, I think even more important in Baylor's case than the, in, ter- in terms of how he played, uh, what was more important than necessarily the white-black divide, which is simply that he didn't play a – like relatively speaking, didn't play a lot of high school basketball, organized high school basketball mm-hmm. period because uh, of his, I know he had like issues with his grades. Um, it, it's been a while since I read up on that, but I know he had some issues with his grades in high school. So he wasn't always able to play on the high school team. And that's part of the reason why he had to go out to Idaho and Seattle to play college. So, uh, so yeah, not that just not having any sort of organized structure, whether white or black was what allowed him to, you know, to just do what he did. Uh, to all of our benefit. Yeah. And the, the other thing that um, because he had, you know, kind of a nervous facial twitch, that actually was another thing that sort of oddly benefited him because it made him a little bit more unpredictable in terms of, you know, being able to confuse defenders that thought he might be going one way when he was actually going another way or, uh, you know, just leading to kind of misdirection. He was able to sort of use that as something that would, um, you know, fool his defenders and, and he was able to make plays um, based off of that as well. Yeah, so, kind of re- oh, sorry, right. just real quick. Like, he kind of reminds me of um, uh, 
George Yardley and Paul Larison. When I see some of their old highlights, um, so like Baylor took it to a whole other level. Sorry to digress a little bit. Uh, back to the first question you asked me, but uh, but like you know, uh, George Yardley had like a little subtle little sidestep, which we now call like a Euro step too. Uh, and Paul Larison also was able to attack the basket uh, in, in fairly uh, fluid ways that was not typical uh, of the early fifties, uh, but. But what Baylor was doing, you know, was again the double clutching and the the, the warping. I, that's the best term I can think of. It's like warping around defenders. Like that's something that he added on to what you know what guys like Arison and Yardley were already uh, contributing. So um, don't want to make it seem like he came completely out of nowhere, but he did add something new to the, to the game. Sure. Uh, just now that I was thinking about it. Yeah, and one of the things I noticed from watching the, the the highlights of him too, the thing that that really caught me is just the airtime that he had, just being able to yeah. hang in the air as long as he did. Because you can see the defenders, they kind of they're like, okay, I know you know he's going to dribble and he's going to go up for a shot, and they jump, but it's just like he just stays in the air and they're on the way down and he's still on the way up. They're like, oh crap, well that's yeah. not going to work, and and it's just like yeah, you see defenders, you know, they try like hell, but they just they they cannot do what he's doing. They just cannot get in his way because he just yeah he floats, he flies, he does whatever you want to say. And, and and yeah, it just completely takes everybody by storm in the highlights. I see it, and there's just no way to stop it. Yeah, yeah did you, and yeah, just to keep using Yardley and Arizon as examples, going off what you just said, Rich. Uh, like Yardley and Arizon, well, Yardley in particular, from what I've seen, had like a move or, or excuse me, like a counter. So like again, like he would like take a step one way, then a step the other way. Now that was pretty much it. Uh, and then Arizon, uh, he had a little bit of. Of, of a gliding ability when he ch- uh, charged toward the basket. Uh, but again, what Baylor was doing was, you know, he did just have a counter, but he had like a counter then another counter, then a counter after that uh, just never ended. And um, like, seems like people have a misconception because like people keep saying like, Oh, he like, you know, he begat Michael Jordan and Julius Irving and Connie Hawkins. And like, that gives the impression that, you know, that Dick Baylor was dunking on people all the time. But what you're saying, Rich is that what he was doing more of was kind of just a, the hanging in the air, which was really right. more of him contorting around people. So like a guy might just go straight up for a layup. It's like, okay, we both jump together. You going straight for a layup. I go try to block it. Like that's that. Yeah. yeah. And, and you know, and to, to your like, point, you know, not to, not yeah. to change and, ter- and talk about, you know, Michael Jordan here, but that's always one of the things that to me, like when people say, Oh, you know, Michael Jordan's just an incredible athlete and all that sort of stuff. And they, they, they like, Lazy people always, you know, mention the dunks. I know he did this. Dunk. To me, it was like never the dunks that made me, you know, the, yeah, obviously Michael, fantastic dunker. But to me, what really set him apart from, from anybody that I had seen before and made me really kind of stand up and realize, oh, my God, this guy's incredible, is that hang time, like you said. And I think re- people that really dig into the NBA and really dig into, like, the minutia uh, of basketball, that's what they always bring up about Michael. Not necessarily the, yeah, he could sky over a guy and dunk over him and do all that sort of stuff. But what really made Michael special was just that he hung in the air for what felt like forever and was able to contort his body and get around the defender and all that sort of stuff. And, and, and yeah, that's to me what really, you know, stands out. And that's the connection that I look at with Baylor and, 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 and Michael and to a lesser and, and to an extent too, Julius serving and those guys. It's, it's easy, like you said, to kind of say, Oh, dunk. Oh, yeah, dunk, dunk. I dunk over everybody. But what really right. sets people apart is that, be, that being able to hang in the air and contort your body and just kind of get to the basket or get, you know, get a shot off. Even if a guy's right in your face, you still have a way to get around him and score. Yeah, and, and also I'm not even sure. You know, looking at that, I watched that you know, the 26 minute video that you talked about from from uh, Will Chamberlain archive, and I'm not even sure there is a dunk by Baylor on there. I mean, there may have been a handful, but yeah, I don't, I don't it, remember it, seeing one. Yeah, I don't remember seeing yeah, one either. It's, so. it's all yeah, like you said, it's all about just kind of the variety of shots, the, the ability to contort his body, and just to, and, and the moves to you know shift around, round, twist around. 
Um, and, yeah, it's absolutely. I mean, it is somewhat reminiscent of some of Jordan's best moves as well. But that's a, an excellent point that it isn't. Yeah, just about like like I said, it, it, you know, certainly athleticism is a, a part of the component, but there was so much more, uh, you know, variety in there and, and some really great stuff. And, and some really great passing too. Like really, um, you know, uh, some really advanced stuff. I, I had not really um, noticed that you know previously watching Elgin the the, the passing there, but there were some really really. Um, you know, great no look, um, tight passes there, just you know, perfectly on the spot to, um, to his teammates. And, um, you know, that was definitely something that was a strong part of his game as well. Hey guys, it's Rich. Uh, just a quick little aside here about a new documentary that we think you guys are going to be very interested in, as well as a uh, little bit of a, uh, a tip at the end that will uh, help you guys get some free gear as well. So listen in and we'll let you know uh, how you can win some free NBA Store gift cards. But uh, this uh, documentary we're talking about, HBO documentary, uh, it's from Emmy Award winning director Antoine Fuqua uh, and NBA All-Star Chris Paul. The title is The Day Sports Stood Still, uh, chronicles the events of the unprecedented sports shutdown in March of 2020 uh, and the remarkable turn of events that followed. Uh, this documentary chronicles the abrupt stoppage of sports, uh, the athlete's prominent role in cultural reckoning on racial injustices that escalated during the pandemic, uh, and last but not least, the complex return to competition. Uh, the Day Sports Stood Still premieres Wednesday, March 24th at 9 p.m. on HBO, and will also be streaming on HBO Max. So again, that's The Day Sports Stood Still. Uh, thanks to the team there, uh, we have five NBA Store gift cards to give away. Uh, so all you need to do, go visit us on Twitter at OverbackNBA, again, at OverbackNBA, or check us out on Facebook as well, OverbackNBA on Facebook for details on how you can enter to win one of the five free $25 NBA Store gift cards that we have thanks to the team at the day sports stood still. Again, day sports stood still Wednesday, March 24th, 9 p.m. on HBO or streaming on the HBO Max app. So, Rich, I think you got a little bit on a, you know, kind of the transition from from college to uh, to his early years with the Lakers. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, originally a 14th round pick here, which is an interesting way to get there. So, you know, as Curtis had mentioned, really had issues in high school. Grades were, were a problem. Didn't play all the time. And, and when college time came, he pretty much could not attend really any major college, even though people knew he was a talent at the time. It's just unfortunately the school record. They were just not able to. Uh, uh, to make it work. So a friend arranged for him uh, to get a scholarship at the College of Idaho, which I originally thought, oh, University of Idaho. No, the College of Idaho. It's an NAIA school, has a thousand students. So I'm thinking, oh, University of Idaho, that's not too bad. No, 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 no. College of Idaho. So a uh, much lesser school than even the University of Idaho. Uh, he averages 31.3 points per game uh, his one year at the College of Idaho because he is a very good player. Uh, at the end of the school year, though, they uh, end up firing his coach and restrict scholarships. Uh, and once again, Baylor left uh, then without a college home. Uh, he then finds his way to the Seattle University. Uh, very interesting school there. Uh, he, uh, as, as he's kind of making his transition there, uh, he plays a year with Westside Ford, an AU team in Seattle as well. And it's, uh, the, uh, the guy that ran that team was the one who kind of got him over to uh, Seattle University. I didn't dig into exactly uh, how that all kind of worked out or whatever. But uh, what happens is, is in this time, uh, the Minneapolis Lakers say, hey, look, this, we, we, we think we maybe found this diamond in the rough here. We may have found this gem here. Uh, they draft him in the 14th round of the 1956 uh, NBA draft. Uh, he opts to stay in school instead. Uh, that next year, then, he almost single-handedly, or not even almost single-handedly, he single-handedly gets Seattle uh, to the NCAA championship game. They lose to Kentucky. Uh, that was not, it didn't air anywhere. I don't think there's any footage of it anywhere, but uh, he does get them all the way to the NCAA title game uh, against Kentucky where they lose. 
uh, which I guess would unfortunately be a <laughs> theme for Elgin's uh, future career. Uh, the Lakers still interested. This time they draft him number one overall, uh, the 1958 NBA draft. Uh, Guy Rogers was the number one, number one overall pick, territorial pick uh, to the Warriors. But uh, the Lakers get him as, as the first actual draft pick in the 1958 draft. And uh, Baylor will then skip his senior year uh, and jump over to uh, the Minneapolis Lakers, who desperately, desperately needed somebody that was good because they were horrible and they were doing terrible on and off the court. Uh, 19 to 53 the year before he comes. And uh, yeah, things are not going well for Minneapolis. Uh, he comes, but uh, they're not long for uh, Minnesota, the, the Lakers at this point. Yeah, he did get him one year to the uh, finals as a rookie, uh, which was you know fairly impressive. But yeah, they... Uh, uh, they end up um, moving on to LA, obviously moving to the Lakers, moving to LA, you know, uh, a huge uh, sea change in uh, NBA history, you know, starting to um, move the league, you know, entirely across the country. The Warriors are going to go to San Francisco um, soon. And then yeah, Bob short, who was the you know owner of the Lakers um, in Minnesota. And then early on in LA basically, you know, said in an interview with Los Angeles times, you know, if um, Baylor had turned me down, then I would have been out of business. The club would have um, gone bankrupt or you wouldn't even be uh, a, a Lakers today. So, yeah, obviously that those years, you know, really, really um, important, not just to Baylor, but to, you know, NBA history in, in general. Absolutely. I mean, I mean what I would say uh, about his rookie year, I mean, it's not just that he got him to the finals like he. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember the Detroit series, but I know the, the Western finals, like he destroyed the St. Louis Hawks, unfortunately, uh, from <laughs> Cliff Hagen and Bob Pettit. Uh, but like the, the Lakers had a decent record. Like, uh, it, here we go, I pulled it up. Uh, they were 33 and 39, but the Hawks were like the best team and they're the, the uh, defending champions in the NBA. They had, they had a much better record. They were uh, 49 and 23, so like 16 win difference, which is pretty significant uh, back in that period when you had, you know, only eight teams. Uh, but Baylor, like, turned it on the last three games of that series and, like, just torched uh, the Hawks. And, like, they won the, the final two games by, like, three or four points combined. Uh, so that, that was like, you know, he loses in the finals, you know, to the Celtics time after time. But, you know, it's important, you know, they realize, like, he gets them to the finals. And, like, that rookie year, it was basically him and Vern Mickelson. And Mickelson, that was his last year in the NBA. Uh, so it was basically those two guys like dragging the the, the Lakers to one final uh, finals appearance at, at the Minneapolis club. Um, but yeah, then 1960 when Mickelson retired, like uh, the roster was pretty bare, and then they kind of sunk back to being crappy. Although they once again gave the Hawks trouble in the playoffs. So, yeah, right. Uh, they always came up came in for the playoff time. Yeah, yeah, and um, you know he averaged twenty five point five. Uh, you know, points per game in those uh, in those playoffs. And then the next few seasons would actually lead the league in the playoffs, uh, having, and he had averages of uh, 33.4 points per game, 38.1, 38.6, and 32.6. Um, you know, I, I think one thing, um, you know, obviously all of those years um, really stand out, but, but I, I think the 1962 season in particular – um, you know, really stands out for Elgin for um, a number of reasons. And that's, you know, one of the 62s, you know, one of the most famous uh, NBA seasons of all time. You know, Will Chamberlain averages 50 points per game that year. Oscar Robertson averages a triple-double that year. And there's just, you know, all kinds of scoring outbursts, you know, across the league. Lots of 50-point games. We talked about <laughs> this pre- previously on the uh, show. But, you know, looking at Baylor's season in particular, you know, 
only plays 48 games because, you know, he had um, Army Reserve duty and he was basically, you know, stationed in Fort Lewis, Washington. Uh, you could still play, but only on a weekend pass. So, um, you know, in, in 44 games, uh, 38.3 points per game, uh, 18.6 rebounds, 4.6 assists. Um, he ends up having six 50-point games that season. Again, this is only in 48 uh, games. Um, and then in um, in and it, it, if it if it counted officially in the record books, it would be um, fourth all time in points per game. It doesn't officially count that he because he only played 48 games, but he did play uh, 2,129 minutes, which is actually more than Bill Walton had in his NBA season. So. Uh, MVP season rather. So, uh, you know, we, we, we got we to gotta petition somebody or something you know, about that one. So um, I was going to make uh, this is the original load management season uh, joke here. But then <laughs> then you, you said he played more minutes than Bill Walton. So I guess uh, All right. that joke's gone. So. And, but uh, there All you right. go. See, Kawhi was like, ah, wait a minute. <laughs> this is perfect. Yeah. Also, I got an idea. I got an idea here. <laughs> yeah. I, I got a fun factoid about that 62 Lakers team. Uh Somebody might have broken it this year because the scoring is out of control once again. Uh, but especially the Brooklyn Nets might do it if Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving and James Harden get on it. Uh, but the 62 Lakers are the only team in history that had uh, three guys uh, score 50 points in a game. Uh, so, like, they didn't do it all in the same game, obviously. But, like, they had three different players over the course of the year have 50-point games. So, uh, it was Baylor, obviously, uh, Jerry West, and then uh, Rudy LaRusso also had a 50-point game that year. That's right. Yeah. I, uh, uh, yeah. That, that's, uh, I believe, his only uh, career 50-point game uh, that season. Yeah, that, yeah, um, yeah that, that was the year worth the most players and the most 50-point uh, games, at least, uh, so far in NBA history. I don't think, even with the scoring explosion now, I don't, I don't think it's like that. Although, you get, having three guys get 50 in a season, I, I think, is definitely uh, – that that is conceivable, I think. I don't think it's yeah, impossible the Brooklyn Nets could do it in the same game if they, know, that's like, if they like, really tried. If they went and said, "All right, look, we're going to do this," I think they could probably do it if they needed to. So. We'll see. It's not a bad challenge if they can get all three of them on the court at the same time. That's not a bad challenge. Right? So. Yeah. There you go. Um, so, uh, game five of the sixty-two finals against the Celtics, uh, Baylor uh, scored sixty-one points. Also, a twenty-two rebound. Sixty-one points is a NBA record in the finals, and Baylor also has the record for most points in a seven-game series, two hundred and eighty-four in that sixty-two finals, averaging forty point six points per game in the finals and thirty-eight point six overall <laughs> for the, uh, the the playoffs. So. Not too bad. Unfortunately, uh, Frank Selvey can't make a uh, open shot, and the Lakers fall to the uh, Celtics in the uh, in those finals um, games. And one of you know many heartbreaking losses the Lakers would have against the uh, Celtics. I would say this was the closest call that um, Baylor had. Although sixty nine was pretty close too, so um, you know it's, uh, it's tough to say. But this was definitely uh, you know uh, I would say that the peak of. Um, Baylor at the peak of his powers in the uh, in the biggest stage here for sure. Yeah, and, um, and also the um, <clears throat> important to note that uh, Baylor, in my opinion, has the official record for most points in a playoff game because MJ got his sixty three points in overtime. So oh, uh, good point. It, it, it is a good point. I'm bringing it up. <laughs> Dude, we did a we did a live. Uh, was was Curtis on that game where we watched it? Yeah, I, was on that. yeah, yeah I, I remember you bringing that up at the time too. You're like, just so we like we're starting up. I just want to let people know that this is not official. <laughs> like, I love yes. it. Yes, yeah. There we go. Our whole bridges. 
<laughs> no, right. no, you should, as you should, man. That, that's... Let's, let's, let's cue Petty. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's why we like it here. So, so we got a oh petition. Oh my gosh, have... wait, wait, wait. I'm sorry. Let me just to belabor the point. Yo, no, it was please, a double please. overtime game. I forgot about that. So yeah, it's like even less. <laughs> so we got what, so we have two things we have to petition. We uh, I'm writing these down. So we have Elgin. We're going to count his season in 62, uh, and we're going to take away Jordan's record here for playoff points per game. Okay, just want to write everything yeah. down that we're going to uh, send over to uh, a silver at NBA.com and see what we can do. Right. So. Yeah, yeah. Okay, sorry. Uh, back back to the regular schedule programming. Oh. Okay. So uh, you know, on the court, Baylor is awesome. But he had some really important contributions off the court, uh, you know, in terms of, um, you know, in, in terms of, you know, fighting back against um, fighting back against racism. You know, in his rookie season, he there's a famous story about him, you know, refusing to play um, in an exhibition game in Charleston, West Virginia, as he's in a rookie year because the all white hotel refused to check him in. Um, I remember that. Um, that Hot Rod Hunley, his teammate, you know, asked Elgin to, um, you know, ask, hey, hey, Elgin, will you play, will you play as a favor to me? And then Elgin says something like, well, you can't expect me to come and play if they're going to treat me like a circus animal uh, that stays in a cage until the show goes on. So, um, you know, that, but you know, obviously Huntley understood that situation. And, um, you know, it was one, one of the situations, you know, Russell, I, I know, had some situations like that where, you know, the players basically stood up and, you know, and, and wouldn't take, you know, playing in those situations. And, um, and, um, and then the other one, of course, um, you know, the 1964 um, all-star game boycott that, you know, he was a, a key part of, and with the, um, you know, the immortal words of, uh, you know, to go tell Bob short to, uh, to F himself. Uh, it's a, <laughs> some uh, good times there. And then the, uh, the, the the players uh, successfully uh, striking the owners caving in and um, the players getting a modest pension deal out of it. But of course, you know, really establishing um, the evolving power of the union that would really, you know, come into force in the seventies and beyond. Yeah. Um, geez, wish I, I should have looked this up before I came on. I'm, I'm not going to be able to find it, uh, but uh, Baylor's protest was, Super important, uh, the one in '59 in uh, West Virginia, because like that, that that crap had been going on for quite a while. Um, like uh, I got Earl Lloyd's biography, and he Earl Lloyd wrote about you know how he was kind of ticked off the Syracuse Nationals were scheduling uh, exhibition games in the South, uh, knowing full well that Earl wasn't allowed to play in those games. So he was like, "It's like it's business," but you know you remember stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know that been going on since you know since the early '50s. Um, and then even at that particular season, the Lakers, I believe, had played a game in, um, I think it was in Houston. And they had, they had dealt with uh, similar stuff with the segregation. So that's why Baylor was, you know, he'd already had enough. I remember this is his rookie year. So he's like, he's like, all right, we, we had one of these incidents already in Houston earlier this year. Now here we are in Charleston, West Virginia. We're getting this run around once again. Um, so like there's 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 backstory to that. Now like, he just all of a sudden decided to do it. Like he had already been, you know, ticked off the incident in Houston. Sure. Uh and then when uh, you know, Bob Short and the NBA are like, Oh my god, like we're never gonna play a game again in segregated facilities. It's like y'all have known about this stuff since like nineteen. <laughs> oh like, my god, racism. Oh no. <laughs> like, yeah. What? Like, um, <laughs> this this Cooper, place in the American South, South wouldn't serve a black person? No. What? Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> yeah, so like 
so whenever like I, I'm obviously I'm very happy with Baylor's side of that story or happy with what he did in that story. But like uh, whenever I hear like the you know the the uh, that's not necessarily the tribute, but I guess like the credit those try to be given the, the short and uh, Maurice Puddle off, and they're like the NBA won't countenance this kind of behavior. It's like y'all been countenancing, counting, countenancing that behavior and going along with it because you've been scheduling these games for years and years. Um, just seeing how much you can get by with. Um, and so finally, Baylor, Baylor had enough. It's like, I'm not playing. So that finally forced their hands. Like, the owners weren't going to do anything unless somebody like Baylor, you know, forced them to. Uh, but then, of course, you know, even then, like, you know, a couple of years later, you had the stuff in Kentucky with the Celtics and the Hawks uh, leaving that game at the uh, in uh, Lexington because of that segregation, too. So um, you still had incidents afterwards. Uh, they weren't as numerous as before. Uh, but yeah, that's where Baylor deserves extra credit because he finally forced those guys to stop playing, uh, you know, the, the pretend shock and actually get down to actually mm-hmm. trying to uh, solve the the racism problem. I, you know, looking at you know some of the other aspects of um, Elgin, um, you know, one one interesting thing, you know, personality wise, uh, he he was he was known uh, had a nickname of Motor Mouth as uh, he you know was a uh, very constantly uh, chatty. Um, like to uh, prank uh, his teammates a little bit or tease his teammates a little bit. Uh, and then also was known for um, always being somebody who had to top uh, somebody else's story. Like no matter like his uh, Rui LaRusso had, uh, had a quote that said, you know, yeah, if you, uh, if you saw a four car crash, he saw a 54 uh, car crash. If you caught a 10 pound fish, he caught a hundred pound fish. It's just uh you know, just kind of a thing where Baylor, you know, was just the quirks of just being a guy who, you know, like to em- embellish things and tell stories and just was kind of a, a little bit of a goofball to be around in the locker room. Although, you know, it was obviously taken seriously as, um, you know, it, as a superstar, as a teammate. And, um, you know, and, and he and West, I think, you know, they um, I don't know if they were you know necessarily super personally close, but they obviously had a lot of respect for each other as teammates. And, you know, one of the great um, duos in basketball history. I mean, outside of, um, you know, somebody like, um, you know, Stockton Malone, obviously, and, you know, Pippen and Jordan, it's hard to think of, you know, two teammates with, um, that kind of long lasting, you know, bond together that played so long and at such a high level, you know, at the same time. And, uh, you know, man does embellish things, but he did survive a plane crash as well. Do you want me to, uh, to talk about that real quick? <laughs> Sure. Yeah, hit the plate credit. That's, that's right. This is so. This is January eighteenth, nineteen sixty. The Minneapolis Lakers are aboard a, a DC three. They're heading home from a game uh, against the St. Louis Hawks. Uh, the plane gets lost. It's running low on fuel. And oh yeah, there's a giant uh, snowstorm uh, going on as well. Elgin Baylor says here we were playing cards and the lights went out and it got cold. And for a while, the pilot didn't say anything, and everybody uh, wanted to know what was going on. And he said the only thing that was working was the generator, not the instrument panel. Nothing. They couldn't see. Uh, anything. Uh, eventually, the pilots end up having to open the windows of the cockpit and brush snow off of the windows uh, since the windshield wipers uh, were no longer working as well. Uh, Elgin then says, finally, the pilot said, listen, I'm going to go down. I think I see a field that we might be able to land in. And he told everybody to get ready. Uh, thankfully, the pilots do land it. They land in uh, Carroll, Iowa, in a random plane field in Carroll uh, or I'm cornfield uh, in Carroll, Iowa. Elgin says the smoothest landing I ever had. So there you go there. Uh, Slick Leonard, who was there, he said as well, when the, when it was over, uh, they got out of the plane and they were so happy. They just started throwing snowballs at each other and having a lot of fun. Uh, first civilian to greet the uh, the downed plane, which uh, thankfully no no casualties, nothing 
uh, was ironically the town mortician who <laughs> the plane went over his uh, his house and he uh, got out and, and and said, "Hey, what's going on here?" Uh, and Elgin Baylor, as you said, ever the prankster, says, "Hey, no business for you today, buddy." So uh, town mortician not getting any work uh, on that day. Uh, so then the Lakers take uh, buses back to Minneapolis. Next trip out a few days later to Cincinnati. Uh, Minneapolis Lakers not doing well at this time. So if you guessed, hey, what plane are they in? Well, it's the exact same plane. <laughs> so uh, Elgin says they assured us everything was fine. So we fly to Cincinnati and we play and we get back on the plane and we're flying back on uh, late J- uh, Jim Kerbs or Krebs. Sorry. Uh, he was on one side of the plane and he was looking out and he says, hey, look, the airport. Uh, we're only about 400, 500 feet up. We thought it was an emergency for a plane that was coming in or something like that. There's fire trucks. You see lights. You see all this sort of stuff. It turns out it was for us because they had an oil leak and the engine caught fire on this plane. <laughs> so <laughs> thankfully, though, hey, the Lakers moved to New in Los Angeles. They get a brand new plane. Uh, another quote from Elgin Baylor says, quote, we chartered a plane at the Butler Avi- Aviation in Chicago and we landed there. So we we're going to use that. Uh, the plane looks sort of strange. It was a DC-3, but it had a real nice interior. Well done. New engines. I said, man, this plane reminds me of that old Lakers plane we had. So we go up to the pilot. We ask him. He didn't know. He said he just flies them. But he said the owner would be flying back with us from Fort Wayne. They meet the owner. Elgin Baylor says, when we meet the owner at the airport, I asked him where he got the plane. He says, I bought it from some SOB named Bob Short. So it's the same fucking plane that went down. <laughs> so they, yeah. instead of saying, well, geez, our, we almost lost our entire team on this plane. They flew it for years and years after and then redid it and then flew it for years and years after that, even when it was in Los Angeles. So, yeah. Well, you know, it's hard to get rid of a good plane. Man. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, I would debate that it's a good plane, though. That would be my, yeah. my, little guy. my, yeah, my counter mean, would be, I don't know if it was a good plane. So. I mean, man, we got history. You can't just get rid of it. Right. <laughs> right. They, memories were made in that plane. Yeah, you can't you can yeah. you know, you can't recreate those memories ever. So no, you can't. the camaraderie yeah, I mean, that comes from all of us nearly dying. You know, you can't. Yeah. That's a great team. I mean, that that's. Some some college coach is trying to figure out. Some college football coach is definitely trying to figure out right now how he can you know unify his team by you know nearly causing a, a, a you know a plane crash in the same way that you know you can't you, you can't buy that 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 camaraderie. So you're right. You're sure. Right. Yeah, I mean one crash out of you know a thousand successful flights. <laughs> right, 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 right there. You know that's uh that's good. Yeah. All right, guys, we'll get right back to the conversation with Curtis about Elgin Baylor. But before we do that, we do need to let you know that support for the Over and Back Classic NBA podcast is brought to you by Manscaped, the best in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels. They obsess over their technology development to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped is trusted by over 2 million men worldwide, and we have an exclusive offer for our listeners 20% 20% off plus free shipping with the code fansided20 at manscaped.com. So let me let me hook you in a little bit more. Let me let you know about what they have. Manscaped, they send us a bunch of tools and formulations from their Perfect Package 3.0 kit, and this thing is the goods. They created the best ball tr- trimmer ever, the Lawnmower 3.0. It's their third generation trimmer. It features a cutting edge ceramic blade, reduces grooming accidents thanks to the advanced skin safe technology. We now can all feel confident shaving. Our balls. Uh, in addition, this trimmer comes with an LED light for a more precise shave and is waterproof to make your shower shave clean and easy. Uh, of course, the Lawnmower 3.0 comes inside their brand new Perfect Package 3.0. It has everything you need to keep trimmed, cut free, and smelling nice downstairs. The Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0 also includes the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and moisturizer. Uh, speaking of those sweaty and stinky balls, there is also the Crop Reviver. Uh, this product, along with the Crop Preserver, keeps your balls from sweating, smelling, and sticking. Uh, in addition, 
In that Perfect Package 3.0, you get a pair of high-performance Manscaped boxer briefs that'll keep your junk feeling fresh all day, as well as a travel bag to store all of your grooming goodies. So trim that junk of yours with Manscaped. Get 20% off plus free shipping with the code FANSIDE20 at manscaped.com. Once again, that's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com. And make sure you use that code FANSIDE20. Unlock your confidence and always use the right tools for the job with Manscaped. So, uh, you know, obviously, you know, Elgin tremendous in the early part of his career. Um, it starts to have, you know, lingering knee issues, uh, yeah, I think, during the 64 season and then ends up suffering, a, you know, pretty severe uh, knee injury in the 65 playoffs that re- require um, part of his kneecap is removed. Um, and and Excuse ten, me? Ten is about, yeah, I, I know. <laughs> what? Um, yeah. And, um, yeah, and, I'm and sure then, we're going to have to remove part of your kneecap. Like, I, I, I don't, uh... and you know, the next season, you know, it, it's a real struggle with, you know, severe pain and stiffness and like you know, scar tissue that he just kind of has to battle through. He ends up slumping the next season, only 16.6 points per game, 9.6 rebounds per game, only season, the only full season he played where he didn't make the all-star team. Um, but then, you know, then he eventually came back to form, you know, he, he averaged for the next, you know, four full seasons that he played at 25.4 points per game, 11.6 points or 11.6 rebounds per game. So, you know, still, you know, very good productive player, you know, not, not quite the same player as he was, um, early on in his career. And, you know, obviously the Lakers are tremendously successful over those years. You know, I think they made, they made four finals in, um, in five years during that time. So, um, you know, even though, yeah, obviously he faded um, it later in his career. And then, you know, his last two seasons, he, you know, barely plays because of injuries. Um, you know, he really did, you know, make a remarkable comeback from that injury and, and, and played really well for, you know, a significant amount of time. Yeah, that's um, an, an underappreciated part of, of, I guess, of his career arc is, you know, that, that, I, he was 30 years old when that injury happened. So, like, and this is, you know, and, relatively speaking to dark ages of sports, sports medicine and, uh, and healing. So like, yeah, like if you're 30 years old and you just basically fractured your kneecap and they're like, all right, we're gonna have to like, you know, remove some of your patella. And it's like, all right, let's see how this goes. <laughs> um, and then like the next year, I, I mean, he wrote, it's been written about how he had like, you know, doubts about his knee. So, you know, he was just like, you know, it was like a mental block where he's like, all right, I'm not sure if I can, you know, push off on this the way I used to. And, uh, you know, do do the twisting and the, the you know have the pounding on it that I had for all these years. Uh, but then, like the, the the next season, he's like, "Well, I can't keep playing like this. Uh, like, it's either I got to play the way I know how to play or just retire because, like, I can't basically half-ass." Um, and he even did it toward the end of that season. So, like the the first part of the uh, the sixty five sixty six season, which is where he had the uh, I guess the down year. Uh, he basically made a decision around that All Star break. It's like, look, I got to like. You know, like I said, like play like I know how to play. Otherwise, there's no point in me going out there. And so the very end of that season and then into the playoffs, he finally like got back to his old self. And then, like you mentioned, uh, Jason, like the next four years, he was really uh, I mean, obviously he's like in his early, early mid 30s at this point. So he was never going to be what he was when he was like 25. But um, he returned to all NBA first team status, which, you know, was quite remarkable. Like I don't think anybody to that point in NBA history had that kind of injury and was able to get back to being a, 
all NBA first team uh, caliber player. Yeah, and you mentioned you know the the second half and then the playoffs of that year. You know, returned to form and and absolutely in the playoffs, you know, in fourteen games, he averaged you know twenty six point eight points per game, fourteen one fourteen point one rebounds. Um, you know, so so absolutely you know uh, productive, similar production that he had had you know in in, in previous um, playoffs and still you know and again leading the team into another finals appearance. So. Um, so you're right. Yeah, there was definitely, you know, I, I turned around at around that point that, um, you know, he started being able to play um, as himself again. And um, you know, like we said, definitely, you know, into the late 60s, he's still effective. And then, you know, it kind of starts to fall off, you know, at age 34, 35. And then his last two seasons, he plays two games in the 71 season and then nine games in the 72 season. And that was kind of, you know, he made the decision. The decision was kind of made for him that um, it was better if he uh, stepped aside. You know, the the Lakers had a, a new coach. Uh, you know, Bill Sharman. The they were playing a, a you know much faster um, you know full court style, and Baylor didn't really you know fit in with that during the time. So they um, you know nine games in the season, the Lakers hold a big retirement s- ceremony in the uh, forum. You know, Chick Hearn is there Jack Kent cook. They retire his Jersey presented him with a, um, with a plaque and, you know, in front of the, uh, Laker faithful, you know, it's a, it's a very, you know, it's a, it's a bittersweet moment. Um, you know, they, um, you know, you, you can find footage of the uh, retirement ceremony in Baylor gives a, uh, a nice, a nice speech. And, uh, you know, of course, the, you know, the sad thing there is that suddenly the Lakers, you know, who kind of struggled a little bit to start off the season, you know, win 33 games in a row and finish 69 and 13 and win their first title in Los Angeles right after Baylor left it. You know, Baylor, of course, you know, had so much success, you know, did so much to establish the Lakers in LA and establish a, you know, winning tradition there, even if they you know, never won the ultimate prize with him. But, uh, you know, they finally, it's sort of, you know, Moses can't make it to the promised land kind of thing. Yeah, that I've always had strange feelings about that. Cause like I like Baylor, obviously. I mean, he was a good guy. He was thirty-seven years old at that point. So like, sure. right. hard, hardly anybody played that long uh, in the NBA back in those days. I mean, of course, right. the league itself was only barely that old. Right. Uh, but it's like y'all couldn't. Well, I guess this gets uh, you have to ask Baylor himself how he felt about it. Uh, but it's like y'all couldn't just you know have him be the victory cigar. Like he earned it. <laughs> yeah. Like, Save the damn franchise. If he wants to play like 10 minutes a night, let him play 10 minutes a night. Uh, yeah. But I, I, I don't know how Baylor felt about it. I know he voluntarily retired, although I'm sure there was a little easing toward the door, but Baylor never sounded uh, upset about it. Like he wasn't like, ah, crap, I wish I hadn't retired. I wish I had stuck around for that ring. He seemed to be at peace right. with, the, with the fact they won a title without him on the roster. But I still think like, man, y'all still couldn't have like, you know, I'm looking at, well, I just put out the roster. Like I could have told John Trapp to go, <laughs> ask me out somewhere else and let Elgin Baylor take those seven minutes a night. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah, no, yeah, and, and maybe he didn't want. And I, I, I kind of get the feeling from what I've read about that is that he didn't really want that role. That that was con- kind of considered beneath him, and he was just, you know, he he was fine at that point with with letting it go. Um, what what is really shady though is that, like, he didn't get a role with the organization after that. I mean, he ends up getting hired an assistant coach with the, uh, with the jazz, you know, as they're an expansion team in 74, he's 
their head coach for a couple years and, you know, ends up leaving in 79 and, and doesn't ever coach again. But I feel like the Lakers, you know, um, I mean, they hired Jerry West as their coach and later as an executive after he had a lawsuit against the owner. Like you can't like find a role for Elgin Baylor. Well, no. (laughs) (laughs) That's an answer. There you go. No. This sure, sure seems like that was the case. Is um, I was actually just doing this research for my dissertation. Um, okay. God, I think it was in. God, there's so many facts running through my head because of that. But I, I think it was 19. I want to say 76 is when I uh, did it. Yeah, because it was the NBA and ABA merge. Yeah, that's when I took the snapshot. It was like there were only, uh, if I remember correctly, there were only three black GMs in the NBA. Uh, no, there were four black GMs, and three of them were also coaches of, of their team. Okay, right. And so it was like, if you're going to be like an executive, you basically have to also be the coach of the team. So they're, they're like, you know, basically using black guys as cost-saving measures. It's like, hey, you want to do both jobs, being a coach and a general manager? Yeah. And like Wayne Embry was the only guy that wasn't a coach at the same time, that he was a GM. Uh, so, yeah, it seemed like the Lakers had already thrown their lot in with Jerry West. Um, Along with Bill Sharman kind of doing the, the general managing of the team. So, um, sure. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no room for Baylor, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I guess not. Well, yeah, they, I mean, like every other black coach in the 70s, he only got one shot at a team and then never got a, not, never got a second uh, shot at a team. And, um, and of course, you know, every, uh, and of course, every black coach in GM has to be a foreign player, too. So, uh, so. Yeah, that year. And, and, you know, here's the thing is like he was coaching New Orleans Jazz. Right. Like, like that team wasn't no good. Like, yeah, it's, it's not really a job anybody I, wanted. I, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, well, the one year they were okay was the year he coached them. You know, '78, where they you know almost made the playoffs. And I mean, if Maravich hadn't gotten hurt, they probably would have made the playoffs. Um, so you know, their one kind of run of decency um, in in New Orleans was you know with him as as coach. So, um, so I mean, he, he probably deserved another shot. And obviously, he he would get another shot in the NBA uh, later on in the uh, in the late eighties. With uh, uh, speaking of a team that nobody wanted to be part of, Los Angeles Clippers. Oh man, it was all downhill for Elgin after he retired. <laughs> oh, the Lakers win thirty three games in a row, then win a championship, and then he gets shuttled off to New Orleans and the Clippers. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Yeah. Now, where, where do we start with the Clippers tenure? Where where to where to start? Yeah, well, he, so he's hired in '86, um, and he he would be there for 22 years until October 2008. Uh, you know, only had two winning season and won only one playoff series during that um, entire tenure. But um, I you know I would think that um, although Elgin Baylor was was probably not anywhere near the list of the best GMs ever, I'm not sure that anyone is going to be um, having a success under uh, Donald Sterling, but, you know, particularly pre 2000, after 2000 or so after they moved to the Staples center, it feels like they were willing to spend more money and, um, you know, actually acquire a few decent players here and there. Um, but yeah, it was definitely, um, you know, I, I think it was, it was, I think history has shown that it was more of a Donald Sterling problem than an Elvis Baylor problem. Well, you know what? Now that I think about it, I've actually written a surprising amount about how crappy the Clippers have been uh, for my newsletter. It was not intentional, but now that I think about it, because yeah. uh, I had that stuff right about Terry Cummings. Uh, 
So they made some dumb trades. I think this was before Elgin became GM of them, though. Uh, GM of the Clippers, though. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, but they had some bad luck. Or, well, so they did make some dumb trades. Like they traded Terry Cummings, who was very young, only like his uh, just finished his second season in the NBA, and they traded him for Marcus Johnson. It's like okay, like this is a, you know you trade one guy that's like twenty three for a dude who's about to turn thirty, and they play basically the same position. But like, all right, whatever. Um, but like the freak injuries they hit that team. Like Marcus Johnson had like a freak neck injury. Like I think he fell into Benoit Benjamin. So yeah, like, yeah. Heaven help us all if that happens. Um, <laughs> you never want to fall into Benoit Benjamin. No, know. you don't. No, um, no. Norm Nixon like blew out his knee playing charity softball. Uh, it's like the episode of The Simpsons with the softball team. Like everything that could go wrong just went wrong in the late eighties Clippers in terms of injuries. So like. Were there good moves? Not really, but all the good players that were there when uh, Elgin Baylor showed up, like they all like, y'all basically like you know evaporated, like just disappeared to dust over the next couple of years. So uh, it was a pretty, it was a pretty bad situation to walk into. In 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 in, in Baylor's defense, those for to say nothing of Sterling, uh, it was a bad situation when he just got there from a roster standpoint because of those sure. injuries. Sure. Yeah, and it's also I I think one of the all the the big issues as well is you know playing for you know running a team that's that's you know sterling aside like you know a team that had absolutely no you know history of of winning especially in los angeles no i mean no track record of winning and being the second fiddle uh, in los angeles obviously never helped and it ends up you know resulting in you know them getting the number two pick and it's danny ferry and danny ferry goes yeah no i'm not playing for this team that's not happening uh you know obviously donald sterling influenced probably many of the decisions along the way uh as well how many of so we you know we don't really know uh, you know, trading Danny Manning in '94 for for Dominique Wilkins probably not uh, the, the best move. Uh, I forgot that they drafted Antonio McDice and then traded him for Brent Berry and Rodney Rogers. That's probably not the best move uh, either. The Ola Candy draft. I mean, that is another one again that you look at. It's it largely like just kind of big misses in the draft. Like they have a lot of really early picks and they either just don't land those you know picks or the guys they get are either quickly traded or don't even want to play for the team. So that that really I think kind of Myers the, the the late 80s early 90s uh run uh, of Elgin Baylor but he does I mean honestly you know looking on the plus side the moves from 1999 to like 2008 most of them are pretty damn good and it, it, it coincides with the team actually getting you know respectable you know early 2000s as well I mean one one unfortunate trade sorry Jason for this one uh you know trading Lorenzen Wright for two first round picks and getting Quentin Richardson and Chris Wilcox out of both yeah. of those for Lorenzen Wright is is not bad so sorry the, the Atlanta Hawks but uh that did not work out for them. Uh, the 2000 draft, I mean, they get Darius Miles with the third pick, Quentin Richardson with the 18th pick, and then Mario Yarich with the uh, 30th pick in the second round, which is all three really, really good players that would, you know, obviously contribute to them a bunch. Uh, trading a, a future first-round pick for Keon Dooling, Corey Maggetti, uh, that ended up working. Uh, getting Elton Brand for Tyson Chandler and Brian Skinner, I mean, that, again, a huge, huge move uh, by Elgin there. That ended up working out pretty well, I would say. Uh, then, you know, flipping Darius Miles for Andre Miller, which again was, you know, something that at the time was like, what? Do you, oh my God, Darius Miles, you know, he's the face of this franchise. And it's like, no, 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 we're going to do better with Andre Miller. And, and obviously, uh, definitely did. Uh, then you jump ahead to 2008, really the building blocks of, of the, the real great Clippers. You know, 2008 draft, you know, selects Eric Gordon with the seventh pick, who ended up not playing, you know, a huge role uh, with the Clippers, but was, you know, the, the big piece in, you know, trading for Chris Paul. Uh, and then getting DeAndre Jordan, second round, 35th pick as well. I mean, that is a huge, huge. Uh, Boone for, for for them and then you know 2008 you know signing Baron Davis as a free agent kind of helped uh, you know you know solidify a little bit of that and then ended up you know 
some things ended up happening, you know, working out in, in, in you know, whether not in their favor or, you know, with the next group. But yeah, getting Gordon, getting DeAndre Jordan, uh, that, that, you know, the mid 2000s run of Elton Brand and Andre Miller and those guys and Chris Kamen and those types uh, definitely deserves a little bit of credit. So yeah, the 90s were, were not really kind and they missed out on a lot of, you know, big time players with, with some pretty bad draft picks. But I would say that last half of that 10 years is, is pretty damn good. All things considered that you're working for, you know, goddamn Donald Sterling. So. Um, golly knows how much, you know, influence he had in the decisions and the bad decisions or whatnot, but you know, ends up winning executive of the year in 2006. So you can't take that away from him. So, yeah. Hey, the honorary, uh, you know, lifetime, uh, having to deal with Donald Sterling awards. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> right. So, not, not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. No, unfortunately. Not nearly yeah. enough. Yes. And also we forgot to mention the fact that, um, it was at the behest of Mike Dunleavy that Baylor was forced out. Of the Clippers, right? Yeah, mediocre Mike Dunleavy. You know, yeah, that, to, uh, that, that little power struggle was like, really, y'all gonna let Mike Dunleavy run him out? <laughs> right. Yeah, <laughs> right, right, right. Then Dunleavy was gone like a year later. Oh yeah, so, yeah. Right. It did not last long after that at all. Oh yeah, no, yeah. I mean, if it's like Phil Jackson or something, fine. But you know, like Mike Dunleavy, come on, you're gonna let Mike Dunleavy? I'm not letting. Yeah, I'm not letting mid two thousands Mike Dunleavy decide or late guy no. late two thousands Mike Dunleavy decide what my franchise. Right. That's like, nah, dude. <laughs> what have you done? I'm not letting any any level. I, yeah, really, any Mike I, Dunleavy. Really, yeah. I'm, I'm not going to let 43 and 39 Mike Dunleavy, you know, uh, <laughs> right, 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 be, exactly. be the guy who you know kicks out Elton Brand. I'm I'm sorry, but yeah, or I'm not Elton Brand, Elgin <laughs> Baylor. Excuse me, Elton Brand. Starts with E, man. Starts with E. I saw his name here. As uh, as yeah. Um. Anyway, yeah, and unfortunately, Elgin's t- tenure. You know, he he leaves the team, forced out in um, you know, soon after the you know the kind of the the. They get Baron Davis, but then end up Elton Brand ends up, you know, uh, signing with Philly. El- Elton betrays uh, the uh, the apparent agreement that he uh, had made. Uh, the the uh, um, what's the what's the word for not non written agreement, uh, verbal agreements that he had, had perhaps made, or maybe perhaps not made, depending on uh, who you ask. But um, yeah, then filed an employee discrimination lawsuit, both the uh, because of ace and. and Age and race, if I could speak, that would be helpful on a podcast. Um, and then uh, Baylor later dropped the racial discrimination claims, but then the remaining claims of age discrimination ended up being rejected by a Los Angeles uh, jury uh, in 2011 by unanimous 12-0 vote. So unfortunately, um, he, uh, Elgin did not uh, win his uh, lawsuit, perhaps if that had happened a little bit later when the uh, – not that in the in NBA circles certainly – Donald Sterling was known about, but perhaps outside of NBA circles that if a few thing, more things had been known, perhaps he would have won that suit. Yeah. It's always funny. Cause that, that, that one is pretty famous with people kind of laughing like, Oh my God, Elgin Baylor is going to sue for discrimination. He had the job for 22 years and he didn't do anything with it. Yada, yada, yada. And then like, yeah, like two or three years later, everyone was just kind of like, Oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> maybe, maybe he was right. right. And it's like, I mean, there was plenty of evidence that, <laughs> that could state that, you know, Donald Sterling, not a good guy, but uh, thankfully right. everybody realized Donald Sterling not a very good guy. Uh, pretty soon after, so took, yeah. took a little a little too long, if you ask me. But hey, you know what? At least we yeah. got it. So right. So Curtis, any other uh, thoughts you have, uh, perhaps on um, Elgin Baylor that you'd like to share? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't think so. At least okay. not at the moment. I'm. I don't know. It's just, um, I guess, I, I guess it's just been nice to see that people are appreciating him a lot. Um, unfortunately, you know, it was after he's passed away, but like, you know, it's been a lot of, he's not, he's like, there's a lot of discussion, just like, you know, he's the guy, the superstar that 
uh, never got enough attention while he was playing and certainly after he played because, you know, obviously guys after they retire never get enough attention um, from that era. Um, but, you know, it, it's been nice to see, like, lots of writers uh, taking the time to interview a lot of the older players who came after Elgin Baylor. Like you were already mentioning at the beginning of the show, uh, how guys like Julius Irving and uh, – and uh, other people were saying, like, you know, they were just influenced so much by Elgin Baylor. So it's been good just to see that uh, really, really come out. Even if the NBA itself does a crappy job as usual. Uh, sure, sure. <laughs> and uh, honoring and portraying its history. But the sports writers have done a good job, I would say. So I'm happy yeah, about that. Definitely. It's been nice to see oh, lots, lots of good stuff out there. So, you know, we definitely uh, like to see that. Uh, and it's good. Yeah, I, you know, I... Um, it was like a month or so ago when, you know, there was conversation about, you know, perhaps changing the NBA logo and having it be, you know, um, to at, after the image of an African-American player. Um, so, yeah, yeah, they picked a little choice, did they? Sorry to. <clears throat> I get that. That was a little stupid. Uh, but go on, keep, sorry, Jason, keep going. No, uh, we, we, I, I'm not sure how I feel about it. I mean, I'm, I'm certainly not, a, you know, I, I'm not. You're necessarily for or against it, but if you were going to choose somebody, I the, the name I suggested was Elgin Baylor. You know, because you know um, he's someone who maybe who certainly isn't quite as remembered as uh, you know maybe um, should be. You know, had, had tr- tremendous influence on the game. Um, you know, isn't somebody who you know other guys in that era. You know, Russell and Chamberlain are obviously a bit more memorable and. Um, He's someone who's, I think, been overlooked a little bit. Plus, you know, he was West teammate for a long time. So there's just kind of some serendipity in in, um, in modeling after uh, Baylor. I think he would be a, a cool choice if the NBA ever went in that direction, which I um, am guessing they probably won't. But um, but if that were ever a thing, he would probably be the guy who I would nominate as a candidate for that. Yeah, there's yeah. plenty of uh, better people than the uh, the person that uh, I'm sure Curtis is alluding to. Yeah, that that's are. what I was going for. So, like, Jason, you, you said very well, uh, <laughs> like, if there would be a logo change, why Baylor would be a good choice. It's like, I don't think there's a need to change the logo, but, like, if it happens, whatever. But, like, yeah, Baylor's a good choice. Uh, yeah, because, like. Of all the Lakers players, of all the African-American Lakers players that have been mentioned, Elgin Baylor is a far better choice. <laughs> it's the yeah. best way to say well, it, right? Yeah. yeah. The player that was suggested by the currently active player who was just for some reason had this thought in his head. <laughs> it was just like, really? Kobe yeah. Bryant? It was like, right. let's, let's all just sit down for a moment and, and ask ourselves, <laughs> what did Kobe Bryant do to change basketball? And it's like, I thought about that when that, that whole conversation came up, and I was like, I really can't think of a good answer to that question. Like he was obviously a really great player, but it's like, what did he do to change mm-hmm. basketball? It's like, I got nothing. Yeah, uh, maybe somebody out there listening has something. Else I don't know if I don't know if I would say there's hundreds of guys, but there are definitely a, a very very big handful of guys that I would definitely. Uh, I, I'd listen to an argument of a Bill Russell. I'd of course listen to an yeah. argument of an Elgin Baylor. I'd listen to an argument of many many other guys. Uh, before I would ever get to, yeah, well, Kobe well, Bryant. So, well, see, I guess the other half of what I was thinking about is like, okay, well, if we're gonna if you are going to change the logo, just just for the sake of argument here, it's like, okay, like who hasn't been honored enough? And it's like, okay, well, Kobe Bryant has the all-star game uh, MVP named after him. Does he need to be the logo? Like, no. Uh, like you just mentioned Bill Russell. Russell's got the finals MVP. Right, right, right. 
So it's like, okay, you need to go for somebody that doesn't have any honorific uh, for him. Um, and yeah, it's like Eldred Baylor, like as much as he did for the NBA and for basketball, just period. Uh, he's got nothing named after him. Um, and didn't even, you know, as Jason mentioned, like all the, you know, the, the accolades and achievements, uh, never got an MVP award. Um, I think he got maybe one all-star game MVP. So I think that's like the one like individual award he ever got. Yeah. His rookie year. He was oh, rookie of the year as well. Yeah. Be honest, right. I don't care about rookie of the year, but yeah. he was rookie of the year. Uh, yeah. but, but yeah, so it's like, you know, this is a dude that, yeah, this is a pretty good argument that, um, like, I, I would say it's like, you know, the definitive and conclusive argument. You know, there's a good argument to be made that Baylor is like one of the, whatever, pick your number, like one of the five most important basketball players from a standpoint of, of like the stylistic changes he introduced to the NBA. And also just uh, like we talked about with his uh, protesting, just how he also changed how the NBA conducted business. Um from a good standpoint, like we're not going to do segregated games anymore because, like, this black guy's upset. He's like, right, yeah, he right, did. Right. Um, so, like, just for that standpoint, like, hey, maybe he should have something named after him. Maybe it, whether it's the logo or whatever, um, something. And la- la- last point about Elgin Baylor just not being appreciated enough. Um, it was really ridiculous how the, the Lakers were, or the Staples Center, I should say. Uh, was unveiling all these statues of athletes out out front of the building, and it's like it took y'all till 2018 to get around to Elgin Baylor. It's like y- y- y'all put a statue of Shaquille O'Neal out in front of Staples Center before you put a statue <laughs> of Elgin Baylor out front. Is that true? I never knew. Yeah, that. it's true. Oh my god, <laughs> Shaq's good, man. You can do Shaq in a, in a few years, man. You can, uh, yeah. Let, let's it's like, it's, let's get the eight year olds out of the way first before we put yeah. uh, Shaq up there. So, Jesus yeah, I so, never so just that. for folks that were um, Lakers, well, hold on. Before I speak ill of Chick Hearn, I, for, I forgot when he died. Let me see. Uh-oh. Okay, well, all right, okay. So, all right, good. I'll, I'll be good in this critique. So, Chick Hearn been dead since 2002. They did a statue of Chick Hearn before they did one of Elgin Baylor. And it's like, Chick Hearn is already dead. Like, get right. this statue of Elgin Baylor up before he dies, before he croaks. Like, <laughs> So the, the Lakers themselves have not done a good job of appreciating the fact that Elgin Baylor, as as you, uh, Rich I think mentioned, you know he saved that franchise. Yeah. Like, uh, w- without his play, like th- that franchise would have been worth uh, moving to Los Angeles at that at, at that particular point. Uh, or if they did move to Los Angeles anyways, they wouldn't have drawn any fans because like they would have had no calling card. So um, yeah, he he's the man that anchored that team in L.A. Uh, other folks. Uh, you know, like obviously Jerry West and then uh, Will Chamberlain and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and Ma- Magic Johnson and James Worthy and Shaq and Kobe Bryant. They all get associated more with being Lakers than Elgin Baylor does at this point. It's like really sad that that's the case because he's the man that, that made them viable in the first place in California. Sure. So sorry, that's 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 my rant now. No, hey, yeah. hey. All right. Yeah. <laughs> right on. That's what's for. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So. All right, uh, Rich. Anything? Uh, anything to close? I don't think so. Yeah, I think uh, I think we uh, hopefully did did its justice. But uh, yeah, I would definitely recommend if if you have never if you've only seen little snippets here and there that uh, that twenty six minute video that we're talking about from the Wilt Chamberlain archive. Uh, very easy to find. I think if you just look up Elgin Baylor highlight video, it comes up. Or uh, just make sure you watch the Wilt Chamberlain archive one because yeah, that one was really good. There's a lot of stuff in there. There's quotes. There's you know a lot of really really cool stuff. They did a great job with that one. So. 
uh, far and away better than whatever I think the NBA, I mean, what the NBA has put together or what they will put together, uh, which is extremely lazy, even by their standards. So um, <laughs> definitely, definitely check out the Will Chamberlain Archive one if you get a chance. So Yeah, and we we also post reposted a um, older episode that we did a few years ago uh, talking about um, – Elgin and some of the battles with the uh, between the Lakers and the Celtics um, in the 60s. So if you want to dig in more uh, to that, that was part of our uh, Bill Russell media series. So uh, that's a that's a good one to listen to as well. Uh, in addition to this, some details we didn't get into here. So uh, do that. And of course, always you know check out Curtis's work uh, at his uh, Pro Hoops History uh, newsletter. Always writing uh, good stuff about uh, NBA history. Anything else you want to plug, Curtis? Uh, yeah, we'll see if I can get around to it, but I'm. Planning on I, I'm, probably what happened Friday, um, which I guess what that has to be the 26th. Yeah, the 26th. So if I do it, it'll probably be that day. But I might take an excerpt from my dissertation that talks about Elgin Baylor and just just put it there um, so people can read what I wrote about him and just see more about what he did. Uh, I mean, it's not going to be vastly different than what we talked about here because uh, like he only did so much. As much as he did, it's not like some secret vault of. Amazing Elgin Baylor stories you don't know about, like the time he desegregated schools in Mississippi, like <laughs> <laughs> um, like that. Um, but yeah, so I'll, hopefully I get around to that on Friday. Uh, but then also, this last thing I just remembered: uh, one of my professors uh, who I worked with a couple years ago. Uh, he, he's fairly old, uh, huge basketball fan though, and he grew up in New York City. And he did say that um, he saw. All the greats play. So he saw Will Chamberlain, Oscar Robert as, as a kid. Like he was really, he was a young boy, like 10 years old, but he saw all those guys play like back in the late 50s and early 60s. He said the best player he ever saw play was Elgin Baylor. So, so uh, from Professor Kraut, that's what he had to say. Um, he's seen them all from Carl Braun to LeBron James. He said that Elgin Baylor was the most exciting guy he ever saw play in person. I think that speaks to. Uh, what we've been talking about, how he made the game diagonal, uh, so to speak. So, uh, so yeah, I think that I think that's high praise from Professor Kraut, who's also very critical of my work. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he loved Elgin Baylor, so that's what's most important. Nice, nice. Well, thank you for sharing that, and uh, and thanks everyone for uh, checking us out. Of course, you can find us on uh, Twitter and Facebook at Over and Back NBA, and also uh, please. Uh, Rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you uh, want to, uh, whatever platform you listen to us. We would appreciate a, a rating and a review helps us spread the word of the show. And you can uh, find uh, lots of great work at um, at uh, the step back at uh, fansided.com where uh, our shows are posted and lots of other great NBA content. So uh, check it out. And thanks for listening. We'll be back again soon.